The second chapter of Philippians has been called the self-emptying life chapter. And certainly we can see why it would be designated in that fashion. Because unity is called for in the early verses that we have studied recently, the final plea for that unity or the final appeal for that unity being a reminder by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian brethren and to brethren for all time that it was Christ who gave up equality with God and who humbled himself, coming in the likeness of men, taking the form of a bond servant, and humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even the death of the cross. And if he was willing to bear his cross, as we have just sung tonight, should we not be willing to bear ours? Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Yes, there is a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. And this chapter of Philippians reminds us that we ought to willingly and lovingly accept that cross, take it up lovingly and willingly and bear it in emulation of the Son of God who bore his cross to Calvary and suffered immensely beyond our finite ability to fully comprehend how deity could suffer bearing the sins of mankind upon his sinless shoulders. And he did it all emptying himself in order to save you and me. Because he was willing to do that, as we have just studied, God has also highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. And then Paul gives us a therefore following that great statement. My beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, realizing you have a helper, the supreme helper. It is God who works in you both to will and to do. Remember, we talked about the fact that willing and doing are inseparable. God is concerned not just about what we do, but about why we do what we do. And God has given us more than ample motivation to want to do what we do in service to Him, to willingly and lovingly bear our cross daily. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, where are we? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we are to do what? Shine as lights in the world. And the only way we can do that is by continuing to hold fast to the word of life. Paul urged the Philippians to do that so that he could rejoice with them and alongside them in the day of Christ, realizing that he would not have run in vain or labored in vain in working among them to bring them to Christ. And then he said, if I'm being poured out now because he was in prison in Rome, he was a prisoner there, didn't know whether he would live or die for sure, and he said, if it is the case, verse 17, as we studied, that I'm being poured out even now as a drink offering 
added to the sacrifice of your faith, then I rejoice. I'm glad to be that sacrifice. And I rejoice with you all, and I encourage you to be glad and rejoice with me. That brings us to verse 19 of our study in the second chapter of Philippians. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. That is, when I know your condition. What an attitude. Again, we see the self-emptying life being exhibited by the Apostle Paul and the unselfish attitude that he demonstrates here and the unselfish attitude that we will see demonstrated in a man little known, in fact, no, only known in this epistle, mentioned twice, Epaphroditus, who also displayed that beautiful, unselfish, sacrificial, self-emptying life, as did the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I want to know your condition. I will be encouraged to know that you are doing well, and I want to send Timothy to you so that I'll be encouraged when I know that things are well with you. And then here's what he says about Timothy. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. No one like-minded. No one else in whom I have that degree of confidence that he is going to care for you when he comes to you just as I would care for you if I were able to come to you. He is coming. I cannot right now, but I hope to come shortly, he'll say. But I have full confidence that Timothy has a deep and sincere concern for your condition. But then he contrasts that with some others. Perhaps going back to Philippians 1, where he talked about some who indeed preach Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill, those preaching from envy and strife, Philippians 1.15, may be under consideration here. He's talking about for all, that is, we believe all those who were with him at this time, they seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. It may be that, that in seeking to send someone to the church at Philippi to learn of their condition, that no one else but Timothy was willing to make that difficult and perhaps dangerous journey. But Timothy was willing to go. Perhaps others made excuses for not going. There was an erosion of support, we know, that did occur while Paul was in prison. This is the first imprisonment, but we know that at the time of his final imprisonment, the second imprisonment at Rome in 2 Timothy 4 and 16, he refers to the fact that at my first defense, looking back, no one stood with me but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. So we know that there were those who were bailing out, if, as it were, on Paul uh, at this time as he wrote in his last epistle talking about the first defense at his first trial, we believe that would be the case, that there were those who forsook me. Luke, who was a faithful worker, was obviously not with Paul at Rome at this time. Otherwise, we have confidence Luke would not have forsaken him. And in fact, uh, later on, he mentions Luke uh, as one who was with him 
and was uh, faithful uh, to him. Only Luke is with me. That's 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11. Well, here, now, at this point in time, he says, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. I would conclude from that that Luke, being faithful to him, was perhaps on some other mission at this time and was not with Paul at Rome. But among those who were with him, here's how he characterizes them. They seek their own and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Their priorities, in other words, are such, he seems to say here, that they are not willing to make the kind of sacrifice that Timothy is willing to make. Family concerns, perhaps, business concerns, perhaps, other things that are tying them up and keeping them from making that kind of sacrifice, but not, not Timothy. And what an example Timothy sets for all of us concerning the self-emptying life that should characterize every child of God. And then he goes on to talk further, to write further about Timothy. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. You remember when Paul encountered Timothy there at Lystra, and Timothy was converted by the Apostle Paul, therefore he called him his son in the gospel, not a fleshly son, but his spiritual son in the gospel, and he has served with me as a father, a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy was quite a young man, quite a young man. And so he says, therefore... I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Another indication that at this point in time, the Apostle Paul was not absolutely certain, obviously, as to what would happen, but he expresses confidence in verse 25 or 24 when he says, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. He did have confidence, and there's an indication that he was freed from his first Roman imprisonment and that later imprisoned again, and that at the direction of Nero was ultimately martyred for the cause of Christ. And Second Timothy was his final epistle. But now, beginning in verse 25, Paul introduces us to a little-known Bible character, as we said, mentioned only in this epistle. Here in Philippians 2.25, and again in chapter 4, at verse 18. The man's name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was obviously a member of the church at Philippi. Perhaps he was a, a preacher there, perhaps an elder, one of the bishops there in the church. We do not know except that he was from Philippi. And here's what we learn about him in what little is said in this epistle. And in what little is said in this epistle it speaks volumes about this man. Paul writes, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now notice how he describes him. My brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. I preached a sermon here some time back about Epaphroditus. And the sermon was entitled, The Epitaph of Epaphroditus. Because you see, we're going to further learn from Paul's statements here about him in this chapter that Epaphroditus almost died. He was sick 
very close to death. And he had really worked himself nearly to death in the cause of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the basis for that study at that time was, what if he had died? What if Epaphroditus had not been spared by the providence of God? And had he died, what would he have had on his epitaph? How would his tombstone have read? Here's how it would have read. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, minister. Tell me of a better epitaph that anyone who's thinking straight could ever want than to have that truly engraved on a tombstone, that you were a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ with all of the meaning that should be attached so that, to that term brother or sister, the wonderful fellowship that is suggested by that term brother, a term that we should never take lightly, use lightly, or consider lightly. When Paul says, my brother you can hear it almost through his pen that indeed he cherished that relationship with all who were his faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He's my brother. He's my brother. But he's also a fellow worker. Now here's an apostle. Here's the great apostle Paul. Speaking of Epaphroditus as a co-worker, as a co-laborer, as a fellow worker, not exalting himself, Paul that is, above, above Epaphroditus, who's just a measly whatever, maybe an elder, maybe a, a deacon, maybe a preacher, but he's certainly not an apostle. Does Paul make such a distinction? No. My fellow worker. And also something else, my fellow soldier, which reminds us, as Paul obviously intended to remind his readers, that we're in a war. We are in a battle. To this young man, Timothy, whom he has already mentioned in this part of the epistle, he wrote in 2 Timothy 2 and verses 2 and 3 these words. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he said, you must, therefore, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Did, did Timothy take those words to heart? Did he take those words seriously? Does he demonstrate even now before Paul penned these words to him that he is that good soldier, that he is willing to endure hardship? Indeed he does because he is one, not like others Paul has mentioned, who's willing to go on this journey to Philippi. He is willing to be sent on a dangerous and arduous journey to Philippi to check on the condition of those brethren so he can report to Paul and hopefully make Paul feel better about how they're doing. He's a good soldier, but so was Epaphroditus because, you see, Epaphroditus came from Philippi to Rome so that he could see how Paul was doing so that he could encourage his brothers and sisters back home. And he was willing to be that soldier who endures hardship. And then he says, but your messenger, he's from you, 
He's your messenger. And it's interesting that the word messenger that is used here is the word for apostle. And some have tried to conclude that that meant he was being considered as an apostle, and that's not the case. Apostle is one sent. Barnabas is called an apostle in Scripture, but he was not one of the apostles as we think of the apostles, nor was Epaphroditus, though the word for apostle is used here, translated messenger in the New King James. But an apostle was one who was sent on a mission, and sometimes it is used that way in Scripture, and it's used that way here because he had been sent, Epaphroditus had, from Philippi to Rome with a gift that is with the physical things that Paul could use and needed and also to assist him and to do what he could for him while he was there. And in so doing, he got sick. He got very, very sick. Very sick. Verse 26. Since he was longing for you all, he was homesick. Epaphroditus was homesick. He loved the home congregation to the extent that he was homesick. Shouldn't that be the way we feel about the home congregation? Indeed it should. And if the home congregation is what it should be and we have that same kind of self-emptying attitude permeating the membership of the home congregation, why wouldn't you be homesick when you're away from a congregation like that? You would be. And Epaphroditus was. Paul praised the church at Philippi. Is it any wonder then that Epaphroditus, who was a part of that church, was homesick to be back with those whom Paul could praise so highly for the attitude that they manifested as brothers and sisters? We, we must strive to always be that kind of congregation. He was longing for you all and was distressed. Now notice this. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Now, I read that correctly. It doesn't say he was distressed because you had not heard that he was sick. It reads, he was distressed because you heard he was sick. He would have preferred that you not know that information because he knew that knowing he was sick would distress you and he didn't want you to be distressed back home at Philippi. What an attitude. What an attitude. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to be aware of those who are sick. We, we need to make every effort to know who is sick and who is in need. But if somehow that information doesn't get to uh, the congregation as quickly as it might normally get to the congregation, we need to have the kind of attitude that Epaphroditus had. He was more upset about them learning that he was sick rather than if they had not known it. What a beautiful spirit he had. And then Paul elaborates further, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but by miraculous means I healed him. That doesn't read that way. No. It would probably read that way if an imposter had written this epistle and if it was indeed not genuine. Can you imagine someone trying to put together an epistle like Philippians with Paul being an apostle, with the power of an apostle? 
with the ability to lay hands on individuals and heal them of sicknesses. Can you imagine someone trying to put this together and concocting this story? And when they come to this part, they say, now wait a minute, we've got Epaphroditus here, he's really sick, but God had mercy on him, and no, Paul would have healed him. Paul would have healed him by miracle, so let's put that in. It speaks to the genuineness of the epistle that indeed that's not there at all. That's not there at all. God had mercy on him, and he was healed, but not by miraculous means. The apostle Paul did not lay hands on him and heal him of his illness. Why not? Why not? Because it speaks again to what we've talked about so many times, and that is the purpose of miracles in the New Testament was not to be used uh, willy-nilly or whenever or at the whim of an apostle when it served no purpose that God intended for that miracle to serve. And what was that purpose? To confirm the word. To confirm the word. To demonstrate, to demonstrate the deity of Christ as he did miracles. To demonstrate the authenticity of the apostles' words and other inspired writers of the New Testament and workers in the New Testament period before this book was completed. Would that purpose have been served had Paul laid hands on Epaphroditus here to heal him? No, it would not have been served. And so Paul had to depend upon the providence of God and trust the providence of God that indeed he would be healed. What should we trust today? What should we rely upon? What should we pray for today? A miracle? Many do. Many do. And they call everything miracles, as we've said before. Football games, miracles occur, according to a lot of people, commentators and others. Miraculous catches, miraculous this, miraculous that. It's a word that is, that is used uh, quite loosely. But it's also a word that is used by so-called healers who claim that they can do miracles and that they still need to do Miracles. Why would they need to do those miracles when this book has been completely confirmed? Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not what? Written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. John 20, 30 and 31. John tells us right there the purpose of the miracles. No such purpose would have been served by Paul's laying hands on Epaphroditus to heal him. But he wanted him to be healed, and he prayed, obviously, I'm sure, and trusted God to do God's will. And thankfully, thankfully, in this instance, Epaphroditus was healed. And he had mercy on him in that healing. But notice this. Mercy upon Epaphroditus, but not on him alone, not only on him, but on me also. Why, Paul? How did the healing of Epaphroditus benefit you, Paul? Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Think about how Paul would have sorrowed more than he was already sorrowing 
because of the conditions of, of, of those around him. Some had already uh, deserted him, etc. Uh, the, the concern he had for the church at Philippi, he wanted Timothy to be sent to them so that he could know their state. And now, if Epaphroditus dies, he has to send Timothy to say, Epaphroditus, your brother, your elder, if he was an elder, your preacher, whoever, is dead. And Paul would have thought, too, and he died trying to help me. He, he died because he was on a mission of mercy to me, and he made himself sick trying to help me and serve the Lord, and he died in that process. Oh, yes, we can easily see why Paul would say, had he died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. But thankfully, he said, he did not. He did not die. And so now what? I'm sending him home. He says in the next statement, Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly. Well, wait a minute. He's still there at the time he's writing this. But this is, uh, this is simply a, a form that indicates that uh, he's as good as sent. In other words, by the time he gets there, and chances are Epaphroditus brought the letter to the Philippians as he returned home to them, at the time they would be reading it, he's going to be there with them. So I sent him, I sent him, the more eagerly, the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be what? Less sorrowful. There's that self-emptying life manifesting itself again. There's that unselfishness again coming to light in the life of the Apostle Paul. When I know that he's home and you're happy to have him home and he's happy to be home, then I will be happy as well. I'll be less sorrowful. And so he admonishes them, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Who are our heroes today in this world? in which we live. Generally speaking, in the population as a whole, and sometimes even in the Lord's Church, I'm, I imagine, they would still be the baseball players and the football players and the movie stars and the singers and the celebrities of this sort or that. But our heroes should be those who, like Epaphroditus was to Paul, are our brothers and sisters, our fellow workers, our fellow soldiers, our messengers, and those who minister to the needs of others. Those are the real heroes of the faith who should be held in esteem. And he adds, because for the work of Christ... He came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. In other words, he brought your gifts to me. And in so doing, he became sick and almost died, nearly worked himself to death in the cause of Christ. And when he says 
to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. He wasn't criticizing them, saying that you have lacked in your service toward me and Epaphroditus is trying to make up for your negligence. Oh, no, not at all. He's simply saying, at your, at your request, with your desire and with your blessing, he was bringing to me what you would have done for me if you could have, but you have not had that opportunity because I have been in prison and now you wanted to make sure that I had what I needed. And so you sent Epaphroditus. And so twice and twice only in all of the New Testament is this man mentioned, both mentions being right here in the Philippian epistle. And yet what a mention it is, one that is worthy of our emulation as we also should work in the cause of Christ with a self-emptying, sacrificial attitude, willing to set aside what pleases us in order to make sure that we seek to always do what pleases God. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Yes, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. Timothy knew that. Paul understood that. Epaphroditus understood that. And in this section of Scripture, those three men have left for all time three beautiful examples of the self-emptying life. Are you willing tonight, if you have not emptied self, to do so in becoming a Christian? By a belief in Jesus as the Christ that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess him as Christ and Lord, as the name that is above all names, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, that he might add you to his kingdom, the church, in which then you will be privileged to labor lovingly and work yourself until death or until he comes again in the greatest cause on earth. And if you have done that in the past, but you know tonight that your life does not reflect the kind of self-emptying life that we've studied in these three beautiful examples tonight, and you need to come home and devote yourself again, as you once did, to that kind of sacrificial living. We plead with you to do that. And for all those who need no repentance, who are striving with all of your being to emulate the kind of examples we've studied tonight, may God continue to bless you to live that kind of life and to be that kind of example. But if you need to respond tonight, will you come now as we stand to sing to encourage you?